it is wonderful to have you on Uncover Wealth Radio. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Annette. I'm glad to be here. So, Chris, tell us, what is delusional altruism? Yeah, so I have been advising ultra high net worth donors and philanthropists and, you know, leaders of corporate giving programs for over 20 years and helping them to, you know, effectively give their money away, uh, which is uh, harder than you might imagine. And one thing that I noticed over the past two decades is that funders are, you know, they're genuine in their altruism. Donors, you know, really want to make a difference. They want to change the world. They want to have an impact, but they're actually getting in their own way Mm. and they're preventing themselves from achieving the impact that they want. And so that's the delusion, you know, they're altruistic, but delusional in their altruism because they're, you know, not, they're not crazy. They're just holding on to misguided beliefs and practices that aren't actually serving them well and often they don't realize that's even happening. And so I felt this was, you know, quite frankly, such a significant problem in philanthropy that I decided to write a book on it, uh, which is Delusional Altruism, Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Their Giving. And so in the book, I outline seven different ways that delusional altruism manifests itself. And then the second half of the book is, you know, what funders and donors can do differently to have more of a, you know, like a a transformational impact on whatever issue or cause they care about, but often by changing themselves and how they give. Mm, Nice. So what are those philanthropists doing wrong for want of a better word? Yeah, And I'll start by just saying, you know, philanthropist really describes most of us. So we Mm. often think of, you know, the ultra wealthy, which is true. And, you know, they're very philanthropic, but also it's, you know, business owners like you and me. Yeah you know, really anyone who is giving in Mm -hmm. either of their resources or their time, expertise, talent, their connections, you know, Mm -hmm. to open doors for other people. So I just, you know, thinking about your listeners and, and I'm sure many of them would love to, you know, be giving away millions of dollars uh, or just earning millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, these really apply to all of us. And so one of them is having a scarcity mindset. And this surprises a lot of people because, you know, you assume if somebody has is giving money away, then you must have enough money that you have extra to give away. Mm. And uh, so that implies an abundance mindset. But really, I think a lot of donors experience a scarcity mindset, which is this misguided belief that you really need to maintain a Spartan operation with your giving in order to, to deliver the most value in the communities that you're trying to serve. And so this manifests itself most often in, you know, kind of being quite frankly stingy in the ways that we donors support nonprofit, non-governmental organizations. So, you know, typically there's this belief that, you know, if I'm going to give money away to a nonprofit, then 99 cents of every dollar needs to go and like help the poor people or, you know, mm-hmm. do whatever that nonprofit is seeking to do. Yeah. And only one penny Mm-hmm. of, you know, one cent of the of the dollar, if you will, would go to, you know, overhead or administration. Yeah. But to me, this is really misguided because, you know, nonprofits play a really important role in whatever the issue is, ending homelessness, early childhood education, mental health support, you know, substance abuse, you know, we can go on and on. Mm-hmm. And as a donor, if you believe in this issue, it's an important issue to you, and you find a nonprofit that's doing great work and really making a difference, then wouldn't you want that nonprofit to have, you know, top talent, 
a great board of directors, fabulous financial management systems, mm-hmm. a great fundraising apparatus, the ability to evaluate themselves and assess what's working, what's not working, good communication, like all that stuff, right? Well, of course you would. But as donors, we too often, we just say, oh, the money can only go for the program. It can't go for the quote unquote overhead, but it's the overhead that covers all that stuff. Just like we as business owners, you know, we need to invest in our own strategy, our coaching, consulting, Mm -hmm. you know, investment of our learning and technology, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. With financial management, all that, you know, quite frankly, costs money Mm. uh, and certainly our own time. And so I think, you know, too often the scarcity mindset applies and it's really funders end up hamstringing these nonprofits and, and they are kind of expected to hobble along. Yes. Really frugally. And it's really holding them back from having the impact that they really could be having. And so instead, I really think donors need to invest more fully in the true costs and the real costs of running a nonprofit effectively. You know, I'm not talking about exorbitant salaries yes. and sending people off to, you know, Hawaii for mm-hmm. board retreats. I'm just talking about like, you know, good financial management. And so that's one way. And I think the other way is even applying that lens to the donor themselves. So so I think the scarcity mindset applies when funders, donors don't invest in themselves. And by that, I mean, it doesn't even have to be money. It can simply be your own learning, you know, really understanding what the community's needs are and really unpacking that by disaggregating data by race and ethnicity to really understand what's happening or learning about best practices and whatever issue you're focusing on building relationships with grantees or thinking about, you know, how could I leverage, you know, I might have X amount of dollars or, you know, pounds to give away. What, uh, how could I leverage that with others to create a bigger impact? So I think really that, and it could also be in your own coaching, you know, your own uh, advising, but really investing in yourself is really important. And too often donors don't do that because again, there's often this feeling of guilt. You know, I have this wealth and other people need it more than I do. So I should give it all away. And, Mm. you know, that seems noble, right? But I think it's actually delusional because in order to have the greatest impact as a donor, I think you need to become the best donor that you can Mm. be. And that means really equipping yourself, your foundation, or just, you know, yourself, your family, your company, and the best ways to give. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I often speak about you can't serve as a business owner if your own cup is empty. And it's it's a similar concept to that, isn't it? Yes, it's a very similar concept. Yeah, absolutely. The kind of giving aspect of basically doing us doing a disservice to the nonprofits when we don't think about actually all the other costs that they have and we don't focus on the fact that that needs supported so that they can then support the cause as well at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think especially, you know, this year, uh, this pandemic has really shown us the importance of all of us, business owners, nonprofits, for-profits, any organization having both, you know, I think it's the strongest businesses, the strongest nonprofits that were like heading into this crisis that are able to sustain themselves and thrive and ideally innovate through it. And by that, I mean, you know, truly like having that understanding of your finances, Mm -hmm. your own strategy, Mm. your technology, all that infrastructure, good team, all that stuff, right? I think the stronger you were going in, the stronger you'll be now and going out of it. Mm. And I think also, you know, the ability to be agile and adapt and pivot and all these words we've been hearing. Yeah. 
it's really important. And for a nonprofit, what often happens is they all the most of the funding they have is very restricted, mm. meaning the donor or the government or whoever gave them the money dictated exactly what it can be used for and what it cannot be used for. And so if your money has to be used for in-person early childhood education, and that's it. Yeah. And then what are you supposed to do to expect them to sit there and like not spend the money? But the better way to go is to unrestrict all that money and make it for what's often called general operating support, which is, you know, here's a grant, Mr. or Mrs. Nonprofit Leader. Mm. We trust you to use the money how you best see fit. And that really allows the nonprofit leader to be flexible, not just in responding to negative, you know, crises and situations, but also to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves. Like if there's new, I don't know, like legislation that they could, would really kind of make a difference and they can support that, or there's a new opportunity to provide services and they want to kind of create a new offering, whatever it might be, that flexible money is really helpful to any nonprofit leader that's trying to, you know, navigate just, you know, the regular old challenges and crises that we have, not to mention a global pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So you use the word trust there. Do you think there's a lack of trust when people are giving that if they don't specify exactly how they want the money used, that it will be wasted? That's exactly correct. Yes. I think there's a lack of trust. And I think a lot of it is really fear-based. And I think the scarcity mindset is based in fear. And in fact, I mean, I think that to such a degree that there's a whole chapter about fear as one of the manifestations of delusional altruism. And part of that fear is losing control. And it's this notion that, you know, it's my money, you know, as the donor, and if I give it away, you know, then I, you know, darn well want to make sure I know exactly how it's being spent. Mm. And, you know, I think as business owners, we recognize like the downside of micromanagement, let's just say, yes. and so isn't that just another manifestation of that? And again, I think it's important to trust the leaders of, you know, these nonprofits. I mean, they're doing this not for the money. Oh. They're doing it because they really believe in what they, you know, the cause or the issue. And if you're supporting somebody who's been working in this industry, in this field, who knows their community, who knows their organization, you know, why not trust them to make the best choices and decisions and to understand kind of what's needed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly you want to learn, like, how is the money spent and, you know, what worked, what didn't work, all that is great. But I think it's important to build those trusting relationships with the nonprofits that you're supporting. Also, because, you know, when there is a problem, which there will be, you know, in any nonprofit organization, if you're really, this is an organization you're supporting over time, then I think you really want that nonprofit leader to have confidence that they can come to you and have an open and honest conversation about like, this isn't working, or I think I need to retire in the next three years and we have no succession plan, like we're going to need some help. Like things aren't, whatever it is, it's not going well, or our board, you know, half of our board is leaving or whatever the problem might be, right? You really want your nonprofit leader to be able to trust you enough that they can come to you when there are problems with the confidence that you're going to like stick with them and like help them solve the problem as opposed to fleeing, you know, saying, well, good luck with that. I'm out, you know? Yeah. And I've seen that happen a few times. I mean, you know, one example in the U S is the Annie E Casey foundation, and this is a very large national foundation and they, they actually do a lot of support for nonprofit succession planning. And they had a nonprofit organization in the state of Maryland that was a you know, huge provider of youth services. Mm. 
And for a variety of reasons, they had lost a lot of funding and there was an executive transition at the same time and they needed help. But, you know, this Mm. is a partner, they, you know, an organization they really supported had done really good work, but, you know, a variety of bad things happened at the same time, not really the fault of the organization at all. You know, many funders would step back and say, well, you know, get back to us once you hired somebody, once you've gotten through this, then we'll keep supporting you. And the Annie Casey Foundation stepped in and said, okay, we will help you now. We'll bring in like succession planning consultants and fund development consultants and help you and the board, you know, kind of rectify and figure out what wasn't working, what you need to do differently, the kind of leader you need to bring in, Mm. et cetera, et cetera. And no, it was exactly what they needed. Mm. And, you know, then that organization was able to hire the right person and, and thrive. And so I think that's really important. Yeah, and it's really, really interesting that, you know, we can, we can run a business and we can see that all that stuff is needed when running a business, yet we somehow or other think that some that one can run a nonprofit without all the stuff that we deem really, really necessary when running a business, succession planning, strategy, all those things. Absolutely. Um, and it's, and it's you know, it's just incredible that we would then think that a nonprofit, which in some instances could be handling millions and millions of pounds, wouldn't need any of that stuff that a business, a commercial enterprise mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. that is turning over millions and millions of pounds would need. Of course, when you think logically, of course, they need the same things. Of course, they come up with very, very similar issues in reality. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. I often wonder, you know, it seems like these super smart, you know, a lot of philanthropists come into their wealth because of success. Mm. As entrepreneurs, you know, they've grown and then sold a business and now have, you know, want to give back, which is great. But it's like all their smarts somehow like go out the door. You know, they were super smart to be able to start the business and sell it profitably. And then it's like it just evaporates, you know, like research and development, you know, like who doesn't want to, you know, some good R&D as a business owner or marketing or whatever it might be. And And then it's like, oh, that doesn't matter. Or, you know, sometimes there's a lot of hubris, you know, because somebody was so successful in, you know, hedge funds or in, you know, whatever the widgets that they manufactured, then they therefore must have the solution to ending poverty, providing mental health, you know, like stopping domestic violence, whatever it might be. And, you know, we all can benefit from new ideas and fresh thinking, Mm -hmm. but it's also important as a donor to recognize that, yeah, you're really smart and a lot of things, but you, that doesn't necessarily mean you know how to yeah, solve world problems <laughs> that have been going on for you know decades or centuries, right? Yeah, absolutely. So at this point in time, obviously, as we're recording, we are sitting in the middle of a global pandemic, which, you know, we're all hoping will end at some point vaguely soon, but we actually have no idea. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, there are, you know, issues across the entire globe what's the most important thing that philanthropists and we as entrepreneurs should be doing at this point in time during this crisis? Yeah, I think it is to plan ahead, to continue Mm. planning ahead, even though the future is so uncertain. Mm. And I think, you know, right now, so many people, to your point, you know, are feeling like, my God, the future is uncertain. Mm. Conditions keep changing. The hits Mm. keep coming. It's like, I don't know if you have a game called Whack-A-Mole. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do. (laughs) It's like crisis whack-a-mole, you know, like one crisis emerges and you whack it down and the next one pops up and you hit it, you know. 
And it can feel very challenging to plan when the future is so uncertain. But I think what's really important is for all of us to recognize that the future is always uncertain. You know, the future is no more uncertain today than it was last year or last decade or last century. And instead of letting that thought of an unknown future paralyze us, I think we need to let it free us And just recognize that, okay, it's always like this. There is no new normal coming around the corner. Like the vaccine is not going to like make everything normal again, right? Because there will always be crises. Disruption is the status quo. Yeah. It just is. And so, but to like lean into that, you know, like Mm. allow that to free you and to, you know, kind of quickly create a plan, whatever that is, if it's for your strategy, for your business, Mm. you're starting a foundation, or you're planning a wedding, you know, like whatever it is, like create a plan that you can, you know, quickly based on the information you currently have available. You know, too often, I think we need to go into this like extensive data gathering exercises. And I think the reality is we need to move quickly based on what we know now, Mm. what are we trying to accomplish in the next, you know, 12 months, begin implementing that plan immediately. Like, you know, where are we today? What do we, what are the top two or three or four things we need to do to get from where we are today? to where we want to be in six months or a year yeah. and then begin doing it and yeah, begin implementing it with the assumption that things are going to change with the assumption you'll have to adjust your plan and then literally block out time in your calendar it, over that period of time, every two weeks or every two months or whatever that would be to literally check in on that plan and say, what's working, what's not working, what else has changed that might force us to adjust this. Do we need to abandon something, add something, whatever, Because that really gives you something to move on. You know, it gives you something to work with and something that you can adjust. And it keeps you focused on what's most important. Because otherwise, we end up kind of either sitting in the sidelines because we're like petrified, you know, or we are just kind of busy doing lots of stuff, but it's not necessarily the right stuff. You know, we're checking email or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think we really need to get clarity on what, you know, where we're headed what's the most important use of our time to get there and then know that you can adjust that along the way. And that that's fine. Like not to worry about that. That's normal. And in fact, you know, I just wrote an article about this that your listeners might be interested in. It's called, it's called eight things every philanthropist can do to change the world. Even when the world keeps changing. (laughs) Lovely. I love it. We will link to that in the show notes as well. Oh, oh, wonderful. Yeah. And it's an easy download. It's you can go to eightthings.org. And download it for free. And it, you know, it's written for philanthropists, but I think it's directly applicable to business leaders and, you know, really anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And, and business leaders who want to become philanthropists as well at the same time, I'm sure. Absolutely. Excellent. Chris, this has been incredibly fascinating conversation. I've certainly had my eyes open to, you know, the fact that money is needed to run nonprofits. Imagine an accountant saying money is needed to run a nonprofit, but, the, but you know, something that we just don't think about at all when we're giving. So I think that's been incredibly eye-opening for many, I am sure. Thank you so much for joining us. We will link to your book in the show notes. We'll link to that article in the show notes, anywhere else that people can find you and connect with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Delusionalaltruism.com is the best place to find information about buying the book, which is available at Amazon UK. And you can find me there as well. Lovely. Excellent. Chris, thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it. And it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. 
So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you do like what I share, please do come and subscribe to the podcast, perhaps even leave a review so that other people can find this podcast as well and benefit from everything that I am sharing. Also, if you enjoyed, I would love if you want to take a screenshot of this episode, share it out onto your social media platforms. If you do, please, please do tag me. I'm Annette underscore Fergs on both Twitter and Instagram. So if you tag me, I can come along, give you a follow, give you a like and some love over there as well. Until next time.